I jumped ahead a little ways. There are a few problem passages, at least the ones that are typically brought up against unconditional election, besides Romans 8, 29. And one of them is God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So if he desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, what's this talk about his choosing some and not others? How does that fit? Because it doesn't look then like he's desiring all people to be saved. Now, here's the way I think about 1 Timothy 2, 4. Um, both Arminians and Calvinists, anybody who's not a universalist, a universalist is somebody who believes all people will be saved in the end. And Arminians are not universalists usually, and most evangelical Christians don't think universalism is taught in the Bible. I certainly don't. And so we agree with the Arminians that God's desire for all people to be saved doesn't happen. That is, his desire isn't realized if, if this uh, verse means that he desires all people to be saved. And, and I'm willing to say, okay, that's what it means. So we agree. Something intervenes and God's desire doesn't rise to the level of action. So you'd say, whoa. Why doesn't he save everybody if he desires all to be saved? And the Arminian has to answer that question, and the Calvinist has to answer that question, because neither of them believes all will be saved. And the question is, which answers are given? The answer's not there in the text. You've got to supply the answer. And the Arminian gives the answer in order to preserve human self-determination God does not save everybody. And the Calvinist answers, in order to preserve his sovereign freedom in election, God does not save everybody. And the question is, which one of those answers is true? And this whole seminar is devoted to arguing that that answer is not biblical. It's a, it's a popular answer. Humans have to have ultimate self-determination, that is free will, in order for the world to make sense, and therefore that's the reason all are not saved. God won't overcome the resistance that everybody has, because if he did, he would turn everybody into robots. And he won't turn everybody into robots, and therefore he lets us have self-determination, ultimate self-determination, and therefore he doesn't save everybody. That's, that's, a, that's an answer. Is it biblical? And I would just say, where do you get that from the Bible? I, I can't find that anywhere in the Bible, that kind of an answer. But that God doesn't let his desire for all to be saved rise to the level of a well-considered decision to save everybody, that seems to be explained by the fact that 
he intends for his electing grace to be sovereign and supreme and free, and he doesn't intend to save everybody from their, from their sin. And he has his reasons. It is possible in the heart of God, I'm arguing, for him to have two wills. And, and everybody agrees with this one way or the other. A will that all be saved and a will that something else keep that from happening. I'll give you another example about that in a minute. But I put 225 here alongside 24. I mean, this is 2 Timothy, that's 1 Timothy. So that you would be reminded of the text we saw, God may grant them repentance and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, the reason I put the Greek up here is because of how similar this phrase is to a knowledge of the truth, to a knowledge of the truth. And here, ace epignosine aletheias, ace epignosine aletheias. Those are identical in the Greek, right there. Those of you who know Greek can see that. I don't think that's an accident. That that identical phrase is used in these two places. Here, he desires all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. And there, he may grant them to come to a knowledge of the truth. And what that says to me is, I'm forced biblically, not theologically, not my, it's not my system forcing anything here. I'm forced biblically to say God wants all to repent and come to a knowledge of the truth and he does not give everybody the ability to because it says so right there in the text. Verse 25. God may grant them repentance to come to a knowledge of the truth. May not. And why he does, he doesn't say he just has his reasons for why he does what he does. But I'm perfectly willing to let the truth, this truth and this truth, stand. I'm not going to say, oh, Calvinists can't believe 1 Timothy 2.4. That doesn't fit our system. It perfectly well fits our system. God desires all people to be saved, and he doesn't save all because he has his reasons not to do what he desires to do. Second Peter 3.9 is another one. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. I think that's a very important phrase. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It's almost the same as second, uh, 1 Timothy 2.4. So these two texts will be thrown up at you again and again by Arminians. If you say, I believe in election or unconditional election, They'll say, no, 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 that can't work because God desires all people to be saved and he does not wish for any to perish. And this one may be solved in the same way as 1 Timothy 4 or the you here, right there, may be the key. God is addressing believers or 
the church or the elect, and he doesn't want any of you to perish, and therefore he doesn't send the Lord Jesus back right away so that you might have time to repent and be saved. Either way, it doesn't overthrow God's unconditional election. And then there are others like, do I have pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather than that they should, he should turn from his wicked ways, his ways, and live? In other words, my delight is not in the destruction of the, the non-elect. I delight in people perishing. He said, well, if he doesn't delight in people perishing, then don't let anybody perish. You're God, for goodness sakes. But look at this passage from Lamentations. I put them together so you could see the, the parallel. The Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion to his abundant to his abundant loving kindness for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men so he does cause grief but it says he does not afflict willingly now now you have a bible verse that is actually entertaining the reality that God does what he doesn't delight to do and doesn't do what he delights to do sometimes for his reasons. So he's afflicting, he's causing grief as he punishes Jerusalem in Lamentations. But he does not afflict willingly. Now I put the Hebrew there can see that hardly. Milevo. So I'd appeal to you, you Hebrew students. Milevo. This is important enough to show you. This is actually crawling in the mind of God, which is a very dangerous place to be because it's over our heads big time. So that's this word right here. It's made up of three words. Min, lave, o. Min means from, lave means heart, o means his. From his heart. So now translate it that way. Translate it willingly. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the sons of men. But he is afflicting them. Now what does that mean? And I, I go here just because I'm, I'm, I'm just so eager to get some help for myself to make, if, if a human being can make some sense out of God's action here, that God, you say that you desire all people to be saved. You say that you don't want any to perish. You say that you um, don't have pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet, you don't save everybody. And you do punish the wicked. And you do grieve the sons of men. And then God comes back to me and he says, that's right, you're seeing things rightly, but I don't do it from my heart. 
What, is, what do you mean you don't do it from your heart? And doesn't that mean I have levels of willing in me? And if I choose that something happened here for all things considered, all, all of the reasons that go into it, all of the wisdom that dictates my doing this here, it still may not be the thing which in and of itself I delight most to do, namely, show grace to people. That's my best shot at trying to make sense out of texts that demand some kind of thought like that. So if you hear people say, uh, Calvinists are just, you know, making squishing texts, making them mean what they want to mean. I'm just trying to make sense out of texts. I'm not trying to force any of them into a system. I want to know, what does he mean? He afflict, he causes grief, but he doesn't afflict from his heart. Now, um, Conclusion. We believe that God's election is an unconditional act of free grace which was given through His Son, Christ Jesus, before the world began. By this act, God chose before the foundation of the world those who would be delivered from bondage to sin and brought to repentance and saving faith in His Son. Implications. We should confirm our election and our calling. Somebody asked about that earlier. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling. You, you cannot, this is so important. Somebody asked a question about this. Maybe I'll, um, I'll jump there in a minute. If you are asking right now, well, I wonder if I'm elect. I wonder if I'm elect. Am I among the elect? There's a wrong way to pursue the answer to that question. And there's a right way. The wrong way is to ask God to tell you. Like, tell me if I'm elect. Am I elect? Tell me. I need to know if I'm elect because I can't have any peace. I can't have any assurance if, unless you tell me. That's totally the wrong way to do it. There's no instance in the Bible of anybody pursuing knowledge of their own election that way. It always is a reflex of doing something else. Namely, believing in Jesus deeply and being changed by him. Then you know you're elect. So here's an example in 1 Thessalonians. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Wow, that's amazing. You know that I'm elect. That's amazing that Paul would say that. How do you know that? Because... Our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. You want to know that you're elect? How have you responded to the word of God? Has it come to you in power? Has it come to you in the Holy Spirit? Has it produced inside of you strong conviction? When you read the Bible, you say, yes, yes, yes. That's my God. That's my Christ. Another example would be, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What's the point of saying that? 
so that you'll know if you have the Holy Spirit. If you are saying from your heart, you are my Lord, I submit to you, I love you as my Lord, you are king of my life, you have the Holy Spirit and are elect. Or Romans 8, uh, 15, I think it's 15, where it says, um, if we are led by the Spirit, we are the children of God. Um, He has not given you the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but the spirit of sonship. He's given you the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So how can you know if you're a child of God? You don't say, tell me if I'm your elect child. Tell me. He doesn't say that, ever. Rather, He says, Are you calling me Father? Are you trusting me as Father? Is it welling up inside of you that through Jesus Christ, you now have me as your Father, and you're trusting me as your Father? So Jesus as my Lord, God as my Father, I know I'm His. That's the way it works. That's the way assurance works works. You pursue the knowledge of your election indirectly. You pursue it by submitting to the Lordship of Jesus, and you pursue it by embracing God as your Father through Jesus Christ and His atoning work. So don't go the other direction and pursue it directly. Um, Let it produce humility in yourself and exaltation in Christ. Consider your calling, brothers. God chose what is foolish and weak and low so that no human being might boast, but rather let him who boasts boast in the Lord. So the two results of being chosen freely by God are no boasting in man, much boasting in God. And that would be the evidence that you are his. You're not going around saying, we human beings, we produce this and we produce that. You're going around saying, God is awesome. God is awesome. And every time you say that, there's a witness in your heart. You're mine. You're mine. It's a reflex witness. When your heart is taken up in boasting in God, it comes around. I know it in myself. The times I feel most assured of my salvation is when I'm preaching. I wonder why that is. I think it's a spiritual dynamic that God loves so much being made much of that he he ministers to me at that moment. You're my child. Keep this up. Speak like this. Go on. Do this. You're mine. And when I'm most quiet and most hesitant to bear witness to him, I doubt my salvation most. It just works that way. There is a witness. The Holy Spirit is witnessing within us that we are the children of God when we are boasting in the Lord. Enjoy your rock-solid security in Christ. We know that those who love God, for those all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew or I would say, elected unconditionally, 
he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And nobody drops out between foreknowledge, predestination, and glorification. That is an amazing passage. If you know yourself in any of those links in the chain, you're in all of them. So read that and meditate on it until there wells up inside of you, I'm really safe. I'm really, really safe. He chose me. He predestined me. He called me. He justified me. And I'm as good as glorified now because I'm in the chain and it never breaks. Isn't it amazing that God wants you to have rock-solid assurance? It's just so sad to watch people in other sects or in, say, in Roman Catholicism or in Arminianism where there's so much insecurity. Like, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven. I'm trying to live the best I can, but I don't know how it's going to go with me at the last day. That's tragic. Nobody should live like that. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. And one of the ways he does it is by giving us verses like, he's predestined you, he's called you, he's justified you, and therefore it is virtually certain he will glorify you in the last day. Be strong and of good courage. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who is raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. No, in all those things, we're more than conquerors. Who talks like that except people who know I'm chosen? And I cannot be lost. So enjoy your security in these things. Okay. A few questions, and then we'll see if we can pace ourselves to get through two more letters. Assuming unconditional election, can God change his mind because of our prayers about someone's salvation? Um, God never needs to change his mind in response to your prayers because he knows what you're going to pray before you pray. He planned your prayer. So don't, don't think like God has a plan over here and then you're independent over here praying. You're not independent. You're part of the plan. This is part of the means by which people get saved. If you are praying for 52 years like George Mueller for the salvation of someone and as you're dying they haven't been saved, George Mueller has turned and said, Maybe they'll get saved at my funeral. And some did. None of those 52 years of praying were in vain. So God, you don't, you don't have to change God's mind in order to be effective in God's action. Because your prayer is planned. Everything's planned. And you have to get into that, feel like life is meaningless because everything's planned, and then get out of that irrational conclusion onto the other side where now everything has unbelievable significance because God's got a purpose for everything. That's the way it works when you're growing up into 
hard things. You get into them partway and you feel like, this is just crazy, I'm going to blow my brain, I can't do anything with this. And then you, you live with it and you move into the fullness of it and you say, this is glorious, it's just glorious. How did I ever miss this? How can election be unconditional? Does God have a reason for his choosing or how does God choose who to save and who do not? And I do not know the answer to that and I'm sure he means for me not to know. Um, what this doctrine does, kind of like the Trinity, who, who can fathom the Trinity? What this doctrine does, when you call it unconditional, is protect us from ever looking in ourselves for a reason why he chose me. When you look in yourself, you see reasons not to be chosen. And then you come out of yourself in praise to the unfathomable grace of God. And that's the way you live your life. I don't think he ever means for you to come up with, a, with an answer. Why did you choose me and not my brother? You should say to your brother, there's nothing in me, Fred. There's nothing in me that would make him choose me over you. Which means there's nothing in you to keep him from choosing you. I mean, I don't know if it lands on you this way. But to me, the doctrine of unconditional election is an unbelievable help in evangelism of people who think they're too bad to be saved. Let this land on you. So somebody comes into your office, and you share the gospel with them, and you plead with them to believe, and they say, you just don't know how bad I am. You do not know what I have done. You know what I do when that happens? I say, I take them by the collar. Not really. But I want to take them by the collar. I say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are telling God that you are too bad for him to have chosen you? Do you get unconditional election? Unconditional election says nothing, not anything that you have done or anything 10,000 times worse than you have done could possibly exclude you from unconditional election. That's the meaning of it. That's really liberating for a person who's a horrible person. <laughs> really, I mean, the, the, the reason most people don't turn to Jesus is because they feel they're too bad. That may be an overstatement. A lot of people. A lot of people don't come to Jesus because you just don't know. I could, I'll look at you Christians. You know, you're all basically upstanding and blah, blah, blah. And, and I, if, you just, if you knew my horrible, horrible life. You wouldn't even try to get me saved. And I just think the doctrine of unconditional election blows those people away. You don't dare treat God like that. God chooses people totally without reference to their track record. So quit talking about your track record right now. Stop it. There's nothing about your track record that could possibly exclude you from salvation. So I love this doctrine. And I love it for the sake of evangelism. No matter whether it works that way, if you've thought about it or not, let it sink in. If God chooses people unconditionally, there is nobody who can bring any condition against his salvation. From his past life. That goes away. And now you're on a common ground with him and you say, would you just believe?
Just believe. Trust him. That's why he died. Cover all that. Um, do you have any counsel for someone who believes in Calvinism, but their spouse does not? Can you share anything from your and Noel's experience? Nothing that would be helpful. <laughs> just because we we came together. That's why I don't think it would relate to the situation. My wife and I went to married her three months into the seminary, and I've always said I'm glad there weren't computers because my precious wife typed all my papers, which means she learned everything I knew. So we went to seminary together because she was kind enough to, I would write them out longhand and she would type them because my typing was so terrible. And therefore we could talk about anything and did. And, and so if you gave her a quiz on Calvinism today, she'd be where I am. And I never ever even felt like I was coercing her or, or anything, we just, but here's, here is a tip, maybe. We did form the habit, before we were married, while we were going together, to pray together every day. So I'd take her home, and before we got out of the car, stop and thank you, Lord. Keep, helps keep you pure, you know, physically, to be praying together. If you're praying together, it's hard to pet inappropriately, you know. At least that's what they used to call it. I don't know what they call it. Um make out <laughs> those are all 60s words I, I don't follow it anymore. <laughs> so we prayed and so I would say if your wife is a professing believer let's just say believer and you've come into a love of the doctrines of grace and she's mm, just keep, keep praying together Keep praying for light. Keep loving her like crazy. Or she, you. I mean, it might be the wife who's way ahead of the guy here in terms of doctrinal understanding. So praying together, being patient with each other, not nagging, not, you know, dropping pamphlets or books. Just be, be real and just, just talk about what you're coming to. And, and if she's willing to read or he's willing to read, share what, what's been helpful to you, direct to blogs. Try to go to a good church where things will be said. Um, but I, I admit, there are real tough marital things on that issue and, and many others where you may have to live in a, in a sad situation for a long time. Marriage is a covenant built on a promise. It's not a covenant built on a common theology. And the Bible is clearest about that in First Peter 3 where the wife gets saved. And the husband's not. Well, now she's a Calvinist. <laughs> Maybe. At least she's radically different religiously from her pagan husband. And Peter gives her some advice there. And that, that advice would be good for men who are married to non-Christian women as well. M much of it would be. And so read 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7 for guidance. Does God love those he does not elect? How does that work? Very good question. Yes, not the same. God has different kinds of love. There's electing love and predestining love and calling love and justifying love and glorifying love and sanctifying love and preserving love. And he doesn't have that love for the non-elect. But 
He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your neighbor. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Be like your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the bad and the just and the unjust. So clearly, Jesus is saying the Father loves humanity and is doing all kinds of good things. And in, in Romans chapter 2, verse, that was Matthew 5, 43 to 48. In Romans 2, 4, it says, Do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, but you, by your hard and unrepentant heart, are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath? So there, the kindness of God, that sunshine out there, the, the approach of spring, the fact that in, you know, in six or eight months, daffodils might come up. is an evidence of God's kindness to the world. Yes, he does. It's a love that he would bring you to this seminar and expose you to this much Bible. And it's a love that you are not dead yet or anywhere worse. Why would God... If someone is elected... Won't God save that person regardless of my teaching and gentleness from 2 Peter 2, I mean 2 Timothy 2. If I am obstinate to letting him use me, won't he still be faithful? Oh, I see. If I'm obstinate and, and not let God use me, won't he still be faithful to save that person? If the person is elect, God will get them saved. And if you say you don't want to be a part of it, yeah, he'll drop you. And use somebody else. But that would of course be a very stupid thing to do. Because there are few joys in the world. Greater than being the instrument in God's hands. In bringing blessing into someone's life. Especially the blessing of salvation. There are just fewer things. I remember one time. Somebody asked my dad. As an old, old man. Almost senile now. What is the key to your joy? Brother Bill. And he said. There is no greater joy than to be used to save a soul. <laughs> That's the first thing on his, on his mind is God used him to save sinners. So, yeah, if you're, if you're obstinate and rebellious and you're not going to be God's instrument, he'll just do an unrun and go right around you and he'll bring somebody else into the life of the person that he intends to get saved. He will save his elect. You won't be able to stop that. But he will always use means so you can never say, well, if they're predestined and they're elect, then we don't need to get them the gospel. Oh, yeah. They won't be saved without the gospel. But God will get the gospel to them. He just may not use you. Of course, you want to think exactly the opposite and say, use me, use me, yes, at any cost, use me, let me be a little cog in the wheel that's turning of your providence so that I can be a part of, of the salvation of sinners. Why would God make a call or will or desire for repentance to anyone at any time knowing that they cannot or would not respond unless he overcomes and causes repentance. I kind of lost that. Um, would God make a call or will or desire 
for repentance to anyone? Why would he bring them part way and then not save them all, all the way? Oh my. This is what we were talking about at lunch, I think. Why doesn't... There's a whole range of issues that are all related. In a fallen world like this, with a sovereign God who could change things just like that, he could throw Satan into the lake of fire this afternoon at 4 o'clock. And a lot of our temptations would go away. He could do for all of us Christians now what he's going to do at the second coming. In the twinkling of an eye, we will sin no more. And we will not be made into robots in heaven. Heaven will not be a place full of robots. But people who freely never sin. And God will bring that about. He could do that this afternoon at 5 o'clock. My guess that either of those will happen this afternoon at 5 and 4 is they won't. The Bible says they won't. Which means that God has for wise and holy purposes decided that the world will go on embattled and imperfect until Jesus comes. And evidently he believes that the church ministry and individual progress in sanctification will bring him more glory in this embattled world than if he snapped his finger and everybody stopped sinning and Satan uh, disappeared now. And all the people were just thrown out. He has his reasons. And I don't, I don't know. And part of that is this question, namely, well, in that process, there are some people who come to church they come under the conviction of sin. They start to get concerned about their eternal destiny, which is a work of God, and they don't ever follow through. Why? I don't know. Why he would allow that to happen, bring some that far, and then not bring them all the way, I don't know. He just has his reasons for why John Piper is so imperfect after 67 years. I mean, that's... that's the, Easiest way for me to keep it personal is to say, I've been a Christian for 61 years, according to my mother, who said I prayed to receive Jesus when I was six. So I'm 67. I've been walking with Jesus for 61 years. Why am I not a better man? A better husband, a better father, a better pastor. Why so much sin left? Keep me broken? Make me able to empathize with sheep? I don't know. I mean, I can guess at reasons like that, but that's just the way he does it. What would you say to someone who says that they think they aren't predestined? I'd say it's none of your business to think about that. It's absolutely none of your business to think about, to, to contemplate the fact that you're not predestined. You have one task, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So my answer is stop thinking about it. Stop directing your attention straight into the mysterious mind of God and direct yourself to Jesus where he pointed you. He sent Jesus into the world and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Go there and you will be saved. That's what I would say.
Maybe one more question, then we zoom ahead. As a pastor now, how essential is it to understand TULIP for shepherding God's people effectively? Can a pastor do without it? Um, it's really helpful. It's just wonderful. And uh, I just think at every point, and I'm trying to point them out with each one, at every point there are relevances for my faith, for my family, for my church, for my society, of how I feel and how I live and how I relate to God that are flowing from a fuller understanding of these things than a small understanding. So I would just say, why even think about minimizing what you know instead of maximizing what you know? If, if you say to yourself, well, I don't know whether these things are so or not. I just don't think they're important. And so I'll focus on the basic gospel and not think about those things. I say, well, you can, you can choose to build a church like that if you, if you want. I think it will be a weaker church. I think it will be more vulnerable long-term to decay and to being swept away by uh, suffering and by uh, false doctrine and... It never has made sense to me. I mean, I don't know what it is about people that were so different in this regard. It never has made sense to me that I would love God less if I knew less about Him. It's never made sense. And therefore, I think in terms of maximizing what I can know about God, not minimizing it. And people who say, yeah, but if I, if I just stay with the basics, I might, you might what? Avoid, avoid some controversy? Well, yeah, I suppose. But don't you want to know him? I mean, like he really is in the book? I mean, this is a big book. There are a few verses, a few favorite verses you have, and they're precious beyond words. They're worth dying for. Yeah, you can live your life on the base of those, but he didn't give us this book for no reason. He didn't tell us things like we're looking at here. I mean, did, did he make a mistake? To tell us these things. And if he didn't make a mistake to tell us these things, then why would we not want to know them? I just, I just don't get it. I, I, I've never been able to compute with people who somehow think that a, more knowledge of God is dangerous. I think that's an insult to God, frankly. You can be proud of your ignorance and you can be proud of your knowledge. Therefore, trying to get more knowledge is probably not more dangerous than being content with less because you given the way we are all wired to be proud will be just as likely probably to boast in the privacy of your heart that you're faithful to the core central things and don't get caught up into that controversial stuff and thus boasting in your ignorance as I would be to boast in I've got all five points of tulip down oh what a big boy I am that, that's, just, that's, that's just, we got Dane pride. I'll give you an illustration of pride. Lord, help me paste this right. When I was in teaching at Bethel, and I, I had just gotten my doctorate, and I was all heady about academia, and, and uh, was writing articles for scholarly journals, you know, three or four articles published. Oh, yes, thank you. And it started to worry me that I was doing that not because I loved the truth or loved the church or loved God, but because it felt so good to, to be successful academically. And, and so 
I decided I would stop. So there was a period of years where I said, okay, not going to do scholarly writing anymore because the motive feels corrupt. You know what happened? My pride just shifted over onto teaching. I will get the best student recommendations of any faculty in the theological faculty. I will be the teacher of the year. I will. You see the point? The point is not, oh, here's the danger, and here there's no danger. There's danger everywhere. Here's the danger. And so I stepped back and I said, Lord, I'm the problem here. Articles are not the problem, and teaching is not the problem. I'm the problem. And ever since then, I have not made my decisions mainly on the basis of which activities out there are proud activities, but rather, oh God, how can this proud heart be subdued so that any activity will be for your glory and the good of people and not about me? Okay, we got to shift gears and get going on limited atonement. We got limited atonement and perseverance and 10 concluding points, and we'll see. I'll try to skip, and we're at slide number 107. There are 79, 72 more to go, and that's 30 whatever per hour, and you, you see where we are. So pray about this. My aim is to argue that the Bible presents a bigger and better atonement than the Arminians see, not a smaller one. I said this already. I don't like the word limited atonement because it sounds like it's smaller, less adequate, less effective, less universal, less, just less. Even though Arminians usually claim the high ground in affirming an unlimited atonement, we will see that the Bible affirms the essence of that, says yes to that, plus a glorious addition for the elect. What we call limited atonement is not instead of what the Arminians believe, but in addition to it. That's my thesis. Okay? If you could go away from here thinking one thing about limited atonement, that would be a helpful thing to think. What Calvinists believe, or at least what John Piper-type Calvinists believe, is that the atoning work of Jesus on the cross does more than the Armenians say, not less. All right? That's where we're going. Definition. The atonement is the work of God in Christ by his obedience and death by which God canceled our debt, the debt of our sin, appeased his own holy wrath, took it away, provided a perfect righteousness in his sinless son and secured for his people all the benefits of salvation. Atonement is the act of God in Christ. So we're right at the heart of the gospel now. The Son is sent, He lives a perfect life, is thus a flawless Lamb to be offered. He dies a substitutionary death, and in His dying on the cross, He does those things. Sin is canceled. Wrath is removed. Let me underline them here. 
canceled debt of sin, appeased wrath, took it away, provided perfect righteousness, secured benefits of salvation forever. All that is objectively accomplished at the cross, purchased, secured. That's what atonement is. Key texts on the atoning work of Christ. Just maybe we'll look at one of these several. Because I want to make sure that I don't assume in this room that all of you are Christian. And so this is the point at which I would try to be as clear as I can about how to become a Christian. How to be saved. So, if that's in your condition, you listen up for the next five minutes especially. This, in my judgment, is the most important paragraph in the Bible. <laughs> Big statement, right? It really starts at verse 20, but we'll jump in at verse 23. All have sinned. So let's start there with our gospel presentation. That's me. I've sinned. And sinning means I fall short of the glory of God. I don't glorify Him as I ought. I choose other things and prefer other things over Him, and therefore He gets belittled rather than glorified. And we are justified. How? That's what I'm going to be. What does justified mean? Justified means that God declares me, you, just, or righteous, or perfect, or holy, or law-keeping. He declares us that. How can he do that? I'm a sinner. I mean, that's a contradiction. He's going to call me just and call me holy, call me perfect when I'm not. Yes, that's what it means. You're in a courtroom. Everybody knows you're guilty. And God says, not guilty. Go free. That's justification. So how? By his grace, there's nothing in me that's making this deserved. Justified by his grace as a gift it's a free gift to be saved. It's a free gift to be accepted, loved, forgiven, justified. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so Jesus redeemed or ransomed. Uh, redemption or ransoming is a payment that is made by a sacrifice to produce liberty. That's what redemption is. A payment, sacrifice, freedom. He did that when he died on the cross. So the question is, how do I get in on it? I want to be redeemed. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to be declared righteous. I want no guilt. And I want wrath removed forever. That's what I want. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward, God put Christ forward, as a propitiation, a big word meaning appease wrath, take away wrath. As a wrath-removing sacrifice by his blood, that is by his death, to be received by faith. There it is. Okay, so how do I get in on this? This gracious gift through redemption and sacrifice and substitution... How do I get in on it? I receive the gift by faith. So here you are sitting there now, wishing you were a Christian maybe, so you could say yes to everything I'm talking about as personally relevant for you. 
And I would say, right now, in the next 60 seconds, you could become a Christian. <laughs> That's just awesome to think about, isn't it? The miracle of, of new birth can be granted to you, and your parallel work with the Holy Spirit here. You say, well, you told us the Holy Spirit saves. It is. He's here. I'm talking. And He loves what I'm saying right now. He loves you, and He loves what I'm saying. And so He's very likely to work right now. You are called to receive the truth, to receive this grace here, to receive this gift here, to receive this redemption here, to see, receive this Christ, receive by faith. And if you want more specificity, I would say you can just eyes closed or eyes wide open say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I've heard it for the last five hours, how bad I am. And he doesn't know the half of it. You do. And he said, and you said, that that's not a condition that could keep me out. So my hope is rising a little bit now that maybe you would have me. And I just want to lay down all my rebellion. Let's quit. Let's throw it down. I don't want to fight you anymore. And I want to receive now the gift of redemption. You paid a, a ransom for sinners, and I am one. And you've said that we could have that ransom count for us if we would receive it. And I now am receiving it. You your sacrifice for me and all that you are for me. And I don't even know all that you are for me. I just want it because I see enough of you to want you. And I receive you and I am yours. Something like that. Remember the time you did that? I don't. I wish I did. <laughs> but I do it every day. I just receive Jesus. You know, not, not, I don't get saved every day. I just say, Jesus, I do now receive you, meaning I just want more of you every day, more of you every day. So that's my answer to how you get saved. Now, the evidence that you are saved, make your calling and election sure. You go out of here, read your Bible, and love people, and just start acting like a Christian, and the Holy Spirit will confirm you're new. You're new. All that sin that used to be so unbelievably controlling, it might feel still a little attractive, but it's just not going to hold you like it used to hold you. This was to show, so here we are in the middle here. Change the color so you can see this. This was to show God's righteousness. He put Jesus forward to show God's righteousness <clears throat> because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So it looked like God was unrighteous because he treated sins as though they didn't matter. And now he's saying, oh, I don't ever sweep sin under the rug, ever. If I forgive sin, it's on the basis of an appropriate judgment. My son bore the judgment. So my righteousness in upholding my glory is vindicated because my son dies for the people that I forgive. And so if your sins are forgiven, for Jesus' sake, God is righteous to do that because His Son paid your penalty. 
and justice is done, and righteousness is vindicated. That's the great thing about the atonement. I'm going to skip all these. What do Arminians say about the extent of the atonement? They look at texts like, he gave himself as a ransom for all. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. He suffered by the grace of God that he might taste death for everyone. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They look at those texts, the favorite Arminian universal, unlimited atonement texts, and they say, in the words of Millard Erickson, who I think is a faithful narrator of what the Arminians believe here in his systematic theology, God intended the atonement to make salvation possible for all persons. Christ died for all persons, but this atoning death becomes effective only for only when accepted by the individual. This, he says, is the view of all Arminians. Christ died for everybody in the sense that the death is offered to everybody and becomes effective in the life of a person through faith. My response, yes, I believe that the atonement accomplished that. I'm not going to argue here. Right? I'm just going to go way beyond that. Let's just make sure you hear what I'm saying. When an Arminian says, Christ died for everybody, what do they mean? I'm not going to quibble over words at this point. I want to know what they mean. They don't mean everybody is saved. They don't mean the death of Christ produced the forgiveness of everybody, produced the propitiation of everybody, produced the redemption of everybody, the justification of everybody. They don't. What they mean, because they're not universalists. Everybody's not saved. What they mean is, he died for everybody in such a way that if they would believe, it would count for them. To which I say, amen. You with me? I'm there. If that's what they mean, now I might not use language exactly the same way they do, but if that's what they mean, I just want to say, I'm with you. That, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, how did he show his love for the world? That he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish. So I would say, the love of God is manifest in Christ for the world. So that whoever believes lives. So what is meant by love and atonement in that 
sentence is a bona fide offer is obtained by the blood of Jesus. It is given indiscriminately to every single person in the world. And the sentence that comes out of our mouth is, if you would just believe, it's yours. To which I say, amen. It's exactly what I do in preaching and what I want to do in my personal witness. What more, Piper, Calvinist that you are, do you believe about the extent of the atonement besides that? What more do you believe? Because you said yours is bigger. It's theirs plus. Like it's universal plus. We believe that in addition to making salvation possible for all who will believe, God had a design in the death of his son. And the design was to purchase that very believing. The elect are chosen by God. The elect are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. <coughs> and then before the elect were called, God broke into history. And he did something for them, for the elect. What did he do? He bought their conversion. He didn't do that for everybody. He paid the dowry for a bride. In other words, by shedding his blood, God not only made salvation possible for all through faith, but he made it certain for his elect. Possible for all, certain for his elect. By purchasing everything they need, including their faith, and repentance, to enjoy it, including conversion. Another way to say it, we believe that irresistible grace was secured for God's elect by the atonement. If it takes irresistible grace to get you saved, and irresistible grace towards undeserving sinners is unjust because they don't deserve it, the way God secures the justice of that is by dying to make it happen. So that the death of the Son secures our irresistible grace. Now, what is my main biblical reason for believing that? The main one, and there are three or four, and we'll look at all of them briefly, but this one mainly, is my understanding of the New Covenant. So let's do a little lesson now on the New Covenant. We're going to take our break at about three, if you're wondering. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. This cup which is poured out for you is the New Covenant in my blood. So Jesus held up the cup which represented his blood. And he said, this is the New Covenant, which I take to mean when I shed my blood tomorrow, I purchase the benefits of the New Covenant. 
I secure them. I bring them about through my blood, the blood of the covenant. What did the blood of the covenant purchase? Let's just look at a few of the new covenant texts. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. The house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the, to bring them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. For this is the covenant, this new covenant is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it, write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So he purchased, when he shed his blood, the writing of the law on the heart, the putting of the law within them, and being their God. Or Jeremiah 32, start at verse 40 here. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, that's the new covenant, that I will not turn away from doing them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts, and I will not, that they may not turn away from me. There is a people I will not turn away from. I will put my fear in their heart. I will never let them depart from me. Those are sovereign activities done in fulfillment of the new covenant. How does anybody participate in the new covenant? Answer, he bought it with the blood of the covenant. He bought this sovereign activity, this pursuing people and making them his own. Or Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will give them one heart. Put a new spirit within them. Take out the heart of stone. Give them a heart of flesh. How does anybody get a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone? God does it in fulfillment of the new covenant. For whom does he fulfill the new covenant? Those for whom he shed his blood. He bought these promises with his blood. And these promises are not making salvation possible. These promises are performing salvation in people by doing heart transplants. Writing the law on their heart. Making them his own. Ezekiel 36, moreover, I will give you a new heart. A new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone. That's how you believe. Nobody believes until he's got a heart that's not a stone. Or if you agree with that. If you've got a heart that's a stone, you're not going to believe in Jesus. The way you come to believe in Jesus is the heart of stone is taken out and a heart of tender, soft, touchable flesh is put within and suddenly you wake up to the reality of Jesus. Which means that the new covenant is not a conditional covenant waiting for people to believe. It makes people believe. It brings people to faith. And it was purchased by the blood. So the blood is effective for the new covenant people whom God sovereignly saves for himself. That's the more that I'm saying belongs to the to the atonement. This is, let's, let's look at the Gospel of John and the writings of John for a few minutes because 1 John 2.2 2 is used against limited atonement usually and I want to show you a way to read it that might help you decide for yourself if you think that's right. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. 
but for the sins of the whole world. So propitiation is a big word. Wrath removing seems to say he removes the wrath, his wrath, from not just our sins, but from the sins of the whole world. What did he mean? What did he mean by that? And years ago, I stumbled in my reading across the similarity between the writer John in 1 John 2.2 and the writer John in John 11.50-52. Caiaphas is the high priest to the Jewish council the night before Jesus is crucified, and he prophesies because of his role there, and he didn't even know what he was saying. So here's what he says, right here. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So he's arguing for Jesus' death here. And then John, John comments, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now look at the parallels here. Starting here. Not for the nation only. Not for ours only. But, instead of saying for the whole world, he says, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Hmm. Hmm. Christ, according to John eleven fifty two, Christ died with a design that this death would gather into one the children of God, the elect, scattered throughout the whole world. So not just Jews, but Gentiles scattered, elect children of God out there. Gather them. That's what the death was for, to gather them. And I think that's what he means in 1 John 2, too. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but to gather under his propitiating influence the children of God from the whole world, so that the world is spoken of there as the representative sphere where all these people are found that are his own. Now keep, keep that in your mind as a possible interpretation and just look at these other texts from John. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from the heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So all that he has given me. There's a number of people that God the Father has, and he gives them to the Son, and the Son's charge is don't lose them. Save them. Keep them. Preserve them. How? John 10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For the sheep. 
I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 15. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen, I think, is the same as I die to gather the children of God scattered abroad. See that there? He's going to die not only for the nation, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. So all the sheep for whom I lay down my life will be gathered. So there seems to be a specificity, a design, a focus on the sheep and on the elect in the death. Not to exclude everything we've said so far. That you can preach to the whole world. That if they would believe, they may be saved. It's that universal. But here, he seems to have a design for his sheep. Keep going. I am praying for them. This is still John, now chapter 17. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Just for the sheep, just for his own. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate or sanctify myself. Now what does that refer to? Almost everybody agrees that refers to his going to the cross. He's praying this the night before he dies. And he's saying to the Father, Father, you've given me a people, and I'm praying for them that they'd be kept. And now I'm consecrating myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. And what I'm consecrating myself to is my death. In a few hours, I will hang on the tree for this. For them. I lay down my life for the sheep. Look at Revelation. This is still John. John wrote Revelation. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals that you were, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation. You ransomed people by your blood from. From. He didn't say you ransomed everybody. He has sheep to be gathered, children of God who are scattered that need to be brought in, his own for whom he's consecrating himself, and people among all the peoples of the world. This is the great foundation of global missions. There are people among all the peoples of the world, and he ransomed them. Go preach the gospel. They'll be drawn to him. Remember John Alexander, the president of InterVarsity in 1967 when Noel and I were at the missions conference Somebody asked a question about predestination. And he said, 20 years ago, when I went to Pakistan, if I had believed in predestination, I wouldn't have gone. I said, if they're predestined, you don't need to go. They're going to get saved anyway. And now, he said, after 20 years, I say, if I didn't believe in predestination, I wouldn't go. Because nobody's getting saved in Pakistan without the sovereign work of God. And it's been that way for many, many, many missionaries over the history of the world. So that was an effort to help you see that in the writings of John, there is this 
additional, unique, focused design in the atonement to save his own. I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, let's get it from Paul. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. One of, the reason, one of the things I've said to my folks, and I'm, I'm sure at Bethlehem, hundreds of people are perplexed about this issue and begin to claim that we, everybody has this figured out, and therefore I just want to help them. And I've said, look, I love all you women in this church, but not like I love Noel, and I think you're happy about that. Every woman wants to know a man loves his wife more than he loves her, because then she's safe. It works. If he loved her more than his wife or as much, she'd be in trouble and he'd be sick. So, my unique embrace of my covenant woman is different than the love I have for all the other women. And so is God's for his bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church uniquely. Yes, all people loved, gospel sent, everyone invited, any may come, any may benefit, whoever believes, but I love my bride and I will have her. I will have her. I'm paying a price uniquely for her. 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church which he obtained with his own blood. I think this is the last, the last piece in the argument. Consider how the death of Christ fits with the logic of the security in Romans 8, 28 to 32. Um, we've read it so many times, I'm going to jump straight to 31. What then shall we say to these things? I'm right here. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the us there is clearly the elect, that is, the predestined, the called, the justified, the glorified. What shall we, predestined, called, justified, glorified, say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. Now that's the atonement, right? Right here. That's the atonement. He didn't spare his son. Now what's the logic of the atonement in these last two verses. How does the death of Jesus and God's not sparing him but pouring out his wrath on him in, in the place of sinners, how does that function here? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, now that us would still be this we here, how will he not with him graciously give us all things. Now that's a rhetorical question 
Anytime you read a rhetorical question that has no answer, the assumption is you know the answer. And we do know the answer. He certainly will. So let's translate it without a question, make it a statement. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will surely give us all things with him. Does that work if the death isn't uniquely for us? I don't think it does. If he's saying he did not spare his own son but gave him up in the same way for all the people in the world, will he not then with him freely give the elect all things? The logic breaks down. It's the design and the focus of the atonement on the justified and the predestined and the called and the glorified that make the logic work. And it is a glorious logic and I just want you to enjoy it. I want you to be able to go home today and say, he who did not spare his own son but gave himself for me will most certainly give me everything I need to get to heaven and be happy forever, personally. I want you to be able to, if I can find these texts that I, oh rats, I thought I had it here, I know it anyway, I'll give it to you. I want you to be able to say Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if you in your head have a theology that says he gave himself for you the same way he gave himself for those in hell. No different design than the logic of his death securing things for you will be weak at best. Because it didn't secure anything for people in hell. He didn't die for you the same way he died for the people in hell. He died for the people who go to hell in the sense that his hands were extended, the offer was made, if you would believe in me, my death would cover all your sins. That's the sense in which for you, believer, elect, he died with a specific design and purpose that said, I am pursuing you through the death of my son. I will overcome all the obstacles that you throw up in my path. I will knock them down and make you my own. I will have you at any cost because I paid for you personally. That's the more that I add to the Armenian universality. And it means that you have a very sweet, personal relationship with Jesus and God through Jesus in regard to his atonement. You don't think of yourself as a number of millions for whom he died purpose in vain. He died in vain. You just don't think of yourself that way. You think of yourself as he sought me, he bought me 
And now we're going to go in a little bit and say, and he'll keep me. Because that's part of the new covenant promise as well. Before we take our break, let me just see if there's anything else I want to include here. So conclusion and summary. When Christ died, he laid down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. That is what it means that having loved his own, he loved them to the end. When he died, he was buying his bride at the cost of his life. He was expressing the greatest love possible for us. It was the great love that he has uniquely for his wife. And the upshot that we may know ourselves owing to nothing in ourselves personally and supremely loved by God. The life I now live, I live by faith. I just read that. If he has loved me like this, he will spare no omnipotent effort to bring me into everlasting joy with him. Concluding paradox. Let this sink in. Is it not amazing that Calvinism, therefore, has the lowest view of the saved person as utterly depraved and hopeless in himself and the highest view of the saved person as individually chosen and loved and purchased at infinite cost? Tim Keller never tires, I wish I could remember the exact words, of saying, you are more sinful than you ever thought you could be and more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. And I think if both of those are held in balance, we will be the most humble and the most happy people. And it's only because we don't see that very clearly and because the remaining sin keeps blinding us to it, that we're as proud or as unhappy as we are. And we all are on that continuum from proud to humble and happy to sad 